Hello, everybody. This is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This is episode 100, and I wanted to do something special for episode 100, so I asked my mom if she'd come on the show, and she was a little reluctant, so I asked my wife if she'd come on the show, and she said, hell no, so I tricked my wife by saying, you will interview me, and somehow that worked, but as I know from interviewing people, you reveal a lot about yourself when you interview someone else, so I'm hoping that you guys get to meet my wife, aka the love of my life. Her name is Alana Oppenheim, formerly Sevi, and she's here to interview me, so I'm going to pass the mic to her. Hi. Thank you, Mike. Um, okay. Scale of 1 to 100, how nervous are you right now? Um, I guess 85. 85. Awesome. All right. Um, I'm at All a cool right. 30, so let's go. Okay. Where did you grow up? How old are you? And what generation, if any, do you think you belong to? I am uh, 41 years old. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in a town called Orinda, which is right next to Berkeley, which is pretty famous for hippies and crazy stuff like that. And that's right next to Oakland. And uh, the generation question, I'm going to give the same answer a lot of people my age do. I really do feel like I'm from this weird micro generation from 1977 to 1983, where we experienced both sides of the analog and digital world. And so I just kind of like feel comfortable in both. But I won't lie, I'm much more inclined to say Gen X than to say millennial. Interesting. I think your music taste is probably closer to Gen X, but your adoption of tech is very millennial. Okay, so because I know you so well, I guess I wanted to start with a couple of these questions. You have made a lot of changes and you've done a lot of diets and you can go on Use Science and read all of the different ways that you modified what you're eating and how much you're eating and whatever. And I kind of wanted to see how you think eating ethics and spirituality are related. <sighs> I guess I would say that um, it really depends on my mood. When I'm down on myself, like if I've gained weight or I like don't like my body for whatever reason, I tend to think that there is a spiritual connection and that I'm not living up to that. And then when I'm doing just great, I feel like it's just the natural flow. I think for me, it's much more psychological than anything else. I feel a lot of guilt, shame, and then also um, just body dysmorphia, whatever whatever that is. It's not – it's a – it's a reality and a feeling, I guess. But you tie in those ethics to eating, do you not? Oh, yeah, yeah, As far as, like, what I eat, yeah. Like, um, when I was young, I became a very strict vegetarian for five years. And then as I've gotten older, I've just phased out a lot of meat products, like, as time goes on. But I don't phase them out with, like, a real strict rule. So, like, if I'm on vacation and I someone makes me food, I usually won't complain or say something if it has something in it that I'm not really inclined to eat. Um, and I do think... The more I interact with animals, the harder it is to eat them and domesticate them and, uh, like, use them for any other purpose. And so I do say that while owning a dog and after having multiple dogs, and I'm sure I'll have more dogs after this. So, you know, like like I say a lot on this podcast, I am a hypocrite, but I still have ideals that I want to live up to. And do you think that those ethics and your spirituality are related or no? I, I don't think it's spiritual because I don't understand enough about the universe to make that claim. Are there goals that you think you need to reach in this lifetime? Wow, that's a great question. Um, yes, definitely. Um, but they're not at all what I thought they were. So when I was young, I thought they were to succeed in the entertainment industry, to have a position of influence so I could help people with good influence the way other entertainers had influenced me, specifically John Lennon and Kurt Cobain when I was young, um, and to a lesser extent Jim Morrison. But as I get older, I, I do not find him to be a great role model. Um, 
And then uh, now that I'm much older, I realize that it's the total opposite. It's uh, learning virtues like kindness, compassion, and patience that are my chief spiritual goals in this life. I like that. Okay, I remember one time you mentioning reaching enlightenment. Do you still think that's one of your goals? Uh, no, it, it stopped being a goal the more I started reading about it when I realized that enlightenment is a thing that does or does not happen to us, and there's stages of it and different theories about it, but ultimately... I was chasing a free ride. I thought enlightenment was like this thing that you attain and then everything's great and easy, but that's not true. It's just a perspective, in my opinion, that you can get while on drugs, for example, and uh, in moments of love, and then it's fleeting when you don't hold on to it. So holding on to enlightenment, whatever the heck that is, that was a goal of mine, but now I no longer care. I'm just here to really work on what I said, patience, kindness and compassion. And the patience is just to be kinder because my impatience is not kind. Okay. What is the legacy you want to leave behind? It's very specific. Um, I want everyone to know that my ex-wife took my son away and her family did it over and over a period of years by lying to me and deceiving me. And no matter how much that hurt me, it didn't break me. And my love for my son and my respect for him is stronger than my inclination for revenge and uh, to give in to despair and anger. Wow, the sad legacy. It might be, but I also want to try to set a template for other people that, like, if that family had actually trusted me the way I trusted them, this wouldn't have happened. And so I have to keep trusting to show people like them that you don't have to fear other people and then act in deceptive and what I call betraying ways. Is that the same legacy you would want out to leave behind for Alice? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, that's a great question. Alice, uh, for those listening at home, is our daughter, Alana and I. So Tyler is my son from a different marriage, and he's uh, seven right now as I record this. And my daughter, our daughter, excuse me, <laughs> Alice, is uh, about 16, 17 months old. And uh, yeah, it's very important to me that she knows she has a brother. I try very hard. I send Tyler cards with pictures of her, and I really want the two of them to have a bond. Um, actually, more so than I want to have my own bond with him, which is very weird for me to admit to myself. It's not weird to say it, but... Yeah. What are you the most proud of? <laughs> uh, it's a tie, and it's Alice and Tyler. Mm, fatherhood. That's good. Uh, no, I'm really just proud of them. I'm not proud of being a father. I'm, like, honestly just astonishingly proud of, like... Because I I don't know with other people's children. I didn't watch them go through these stages. You know, I saw Tyler every single day until he was two, and then I saw him a lot until he was about six. And Alice I've seen every day and hopefully will the rest of my life. And it's just, like, I'm just so proud of, like the tenacity that children have. It's crazy to me. Okay. Well, thinking about the Tyler thing, and I probably should have put this question before, what lessons do you think you're here to learn? I'm not sure if I'm here to learn lessons. I should preface my answer with that. Oh, okay. But based on interviewing Christian Sundberg and a couple other, I read his book and a couple other things I've read over the course of my life, I do get the, I get a very strong feeling that I am here to learn lessons, but I also feel that like you don't have to learn them and that you can like skip them or revise them and stuff. So that's why I prefaced this answer with at this current moment, I would say the lessons I'm here to learn are kindness, forgiveness. That's a huge one. And um, patience, like I said, and compassion, but forgiveness is, is a huge one. Forgiveness makes sense to me. Yeah. And just Especially for the record, it ties back into the eating thing, forgiveness with myself and my body and forgiveness with others, including the people who, you know, quote unquote, took my son from me. Are there any lessons that are taught to us through death? Yes, um, many, 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 and it's always going. So at the earliest age, you're introduced to death, whether it's like you squish an ant or 
literally your aunt dies or your parents or, you know, whatever it is, you start to see that there's an end to everyone's narrative. And so your narrative is just your string of it. And I think that uh, it's hard, like, as I, as I watch people I love age, like all these heroes that I grew up worshiping who are in their 40s and 50s, and now they're in their 70s and 80s. It's not scary and it's not sad, but it would be if I wasn't thinking about it my whole life. Instead, it's a necessary tragedy (laughs) because they're personal to me and I love them. But then I imagine how I'm going to feel when I'm in my 70s and 80s, God willing, and you know, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I can tell I'm not going to because I don't feel sorry for myself at 41 and my body's not at all what it was when I was 21. So I think death is a constant reminder not so much a lesson leader and if you're not paying attention to it or you're not listening to it and thinking about it you're probably going to have to do a lot of summer school when it does confront you because it will okay what do you think that the purpose of it is i think it would be phenomenally boring if we didn't die it would just there'd be no point and you would just keep delaying doing things because there'd be no motivator so i feel like i just wrote about this a couple weeks ago but like there's an hourglass with sand falling. And if you're not looking at how little sand you have left or how much you have left, you're not making intelligent decisions. I'm a huge fan of sports and it's like clock management is one of the biggest and most important factors in coaching and in sports. And, you know, there's famous examples of like players who blow it or call a timeout when they don't have one and stuff like that. And that's kind of how I feel about life. Like you can't just sit there waiting to get good before you enter the pool of, skilled people that you want to join so like whether you love shooting pool or you love acting or you love um computer programming you can't just sit there waiting to get good at those things you have to get good in the arena of life and you got to get motivated and so i think death is a good motivator for that i like that and what do you think happens when you die hey everyone if you're a fan of the show please head over to mikeyop.com and click the subscribe button it's the best way to support us and it's free that's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. I am really convinced that I'm going to review my life. That's the only thing since like birth that I felt really strongly about. I just have this like, it's almost like a memory, but it's like, I'm just sure that when you die, you have to watch everything. And I'm going to get really graphic because this is actually really important to me and it's never come up on the show. I especially think of that my whole life whenever I've masturbated, um, not while I'm masturbating, but like. I always think like, God, am I going to like watch myself (laughs) masturbating and like what I chose to like picture and and what um, aroused me? And I will say that nothing that arouses me is, in my opinion, shameful, but it's still like very personal. And so when I imagine like reviewing all of that, but like with other people, it kind of like leads me to think like, you know, how um, there's all these studies like people won't steal if they think there's a camera in the room but if they do not think there's one they will like so i live my life a lot of times like there's a camera in the room and uh to be very honest it served me quite quite well i really don't have anything that like some hacker could reveal to the world that would like shame me um because i've always thought about my life as being very public um but not public from earthlings and humans perspective from like the spiritual realm there's so much in that i want to unfold but why would you review your life including all those things before you die not before you die you ask me when you die when you die yeah why because Uh, there's so many lessons to learn when you see something from a third perspective so right now i see the world like very myopically i see my ex-in-laws took my son from me that's not objective that's anything but objective the objective sentence is two people married had a child and got a divorce 
one of them said, you can take this kid on a vacation. And the other said, thank you. And then when they were there, they decided not to come home. Like that's one version of the story. So when you watch your life, I think you'll see a lot of unfair bias that you put towards yourself and against other people. And I think that's, um, that's a lot of, there's a lot to learn in that. Okay. So there is learning that this life is about learning. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I, I hope it is. And, and I really hope it is. I strongly hope it is. I talked to, uh, I think episode five, Alex Rice, he's one of my best friends on earth. And I talk to him every week and I bring this up like constantly with him. I just constantly mention how much I really think and feel, but hope that there is a purpose to this journey. What do you think will happen to your soul when you die? I don't think my Just soul the... has a opinion, consciousness, human-like mind. So I don't think anything happens to it when I die. And I don't think anything happens to it when I'm born. I think my soul is like not, a, you know, how uh, there's that word and I always say it wrong, but anthropomorphize, like when you turn animals into humans, like in cartoons and stuff. I think we do that with the soul. And I think that's not accurate. What happens to that essence? Nothing. That's what I'm saying. Nothing happens ever. There's no time. So nothing's happening to it. Do you believe in past lives? I used to, and the more I do the show, the less I do. Wow. So you don't think you'll be reincarnated? I don't think I will be reincarnated. I think that incarnations exist, but I don't think it works at all the way that we like to talk about it in movies and books and stuff like that. I think it works so absurdly differently than we could ever even imagine. And the main thing that makes me compelled to say this is time is a human construct and a third dimensional construct, but time is absolutely a variable. And that's what Albert Einstein is so famous for. We, we consider him the smartest person ever, basically because he proved something that a lot of us intuitively feel, which is that time is aggressively real here, but it's absolutely non a non-factor in the eternal existence because eternity is not of time. Okay. Do you think... The challenges you face, are they the same theme or do they change over time? What do you think of all the challenges you face? It's a a good question. So, okay, when I was young, my biggest challenge was being afraid of these dreams I would have. Like, that's my first, like, I remember being afraid to go to sleep because in my sleep I would have these, like, repetitive nightmares where um, Yogi Bear was chasing me around and then he would turn into different people in my life. Um, And, like, it was very weird. That's the best I could explain it. Then when I got older, I didn't really feel like I had any challenges. I was, like, naturally athletic and I was naturally popular when I was, like, nine And all the way up until I was about 11. Then my parents moved me across town. And for reasons I'll never officially know, or maybe I will in my life review, I started putting on weight and I wasn't like instantly popular. And I remember like really being challenged by that. And then that just grew and grew and grew. So when I graduated high school, I was like 270 pounds. I should have weighed about 180. So I was about 100 pounds overweight. And uh, I was very challenged by that. And then I lost all that weight. And then some, like five years ago, I weighed 160 pounds at some point. So I was like the thinnest I've ever been in my life, but like healthy. I was running all the time. And I'm, I'm getting like really nuanced about this because I'm trying to explain like what a challenge is to me. So my challenge my whole life since that fourth grade move has been dealing with my weight. But now that I'm older, I would re- redefine it as dealing with body dysmorphia, my opinion of my weight. And so that challenge of like, what do other people think about you is actually the same. It was just like, being liked and all that. So I think my challenges are thematic. And then the other challenges I feel are in in my professional life where I've been trying for so many years to make it as a writer. And up until recently, I wasn't even sure what make it means, you know? So I have books published, I have sales, and I've started to realize that like, unless I feel successful, I'm never gonna 
be successful. So that's a huge challenge for me, getting myself to realize that my body's just fine. I do exercise and eat well, and my career's just fine. I do all my work and I'm proud of it. You know, it's weird because I'm talking to you, you're my wife. My other biggest challenge I would have said up until recently with you would be being married, being in relationships. But honestly, it's been so easy with you since last June when I just kind of had this like huge epiphany. Do you want me to share it? Sure. We were arguing a lot and fighting and it was always about the same stupid things. It was about like how to spend money. It's what like 99% of couples argue about. And I realized one day that I'm still allowed to object to your opinion versus my opinion of like how to use finances. But the difference is how I bring it up and how I talk about it and how I treat the disparity and disagreement. And so ever since I did that, it's just felt like cloud nine for me. Like we've still argued and had disagreements, but it never sticks. I never get that feeling I used to get where I'm like, oh, I'm just too bad at this. I'm not good at this. I don't know how to be with someone and cooperate and compromise. Now it seems ridiculously easy. Um, and that's, again, like a huge challenge for me was learning how to honestly just how to shut the F up and like just let someone else get their way. And, and I'm speaking directly to you and about you, but like, it's not like you're sitting there like, I always have to get my way. It's just like, there's certain moments where I don't feel like I should be the one to not get my way. And so like a huge step in life for me was like I said, June 21st, I just had this like monster epiphany and it's just been so easy ever since then. Let her get her way and see how bad it is in a week. And if it's really that bad, then try to undo it. And it never is that bad. Well, that's a good technique. One, and number two, I don't think we were fighting about money. And then number three, I don't think I get my way all that often. <laughs> uh, we were fighting about our house and whether we should move or not. And it had to do with money on my end. But I don't think I always get my way. No, I didn't say you always get your way. No, I know, but I, you, you implied and I get my way a lot. I did not mean to imply that. What I meant, and I do mean this, is it's hard to ever let someone get their way in any relationship, in friendship, in work, in anything. But especially in a marriage, it's actually to my advantage to quote unquote, let you get your way. That's the big epiphany I had. This is, by the way, why people want to hear a husband and wife talk. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think that your challenges, the what you described, you know, first being scary dreams and making friends and weight, you mentioned like being liked. Do you think your challenges are spiritual, mental, physical, all three? You know, it's funny, uh, only because of the way you phrase it, do I have a snappy answer to that, which is I think all challenges are the spirit trying to let the body and mind coordinate with it without telling it what to do. So I feel like spirit is not um, a top down system. And the mind is absolutely top down. But then when the body sends a message to the mind and the spirit, it speaks the loudest of all. Like, so, you know, like when I hurt my ankle for two months and couldn't exercise, it doesn't matter how much I want to like insist that my exercise routine was working. It obviously wasn't, you know, so I had to switch. So maybe equal. Funny, I wrote what I thought your three challenges were. And I wrote that I thought they were the same. <laughs> well, you mentioned that you were scared of your dreams when you were young. Do you think dreams have any significance? Uh, so I have insomnia and I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but I know that I dream every night and I often wake up from like screaming in my sleep or I feel myself like sitting up in bed sometimes when I'm asleep and I have had enough lucid dreams, like more than 50, that I'm pretty comfortable saying that like I feel like this reality is often more fake than the dream world. But as far as like does it – do they have significance – 
it might be that this has significance there the more I start to think about it. Like, uh, we talked about the eternal soul. There's something about that and dreams. Like, I don't feel like Mike Oppenheim dreams. I feel like dreams are actually a reality. And in that reality, I'm not Mike Oppenheim. And maybe Mike Oppenheim is like watching that reality the same way a different thing or entity might be watching or experiencing Mike Oppenheim when I'm awake, like right now. Do you think there's the eternal soul in the dream world? Do you think that there are other eternal souls that can interact with you in the dream world? That's a really good question. And I can't, I can only answer it as like, for fun on a podcast because I, I I feel no confidence answering this like whatsoever, but I will say experience is the only word I can use. There's a feeling of experience and I don't think Mike Oppenheim is feeling the experience of Mike Oppenheim. I think there's something else and I think a lot of people would call it your soul. I'm not comfortable calling it my soul for like weird reasons and I can get into it, but they're not interesting at all. I just don't really feel like being specific when I, I don't know how to be. So I just get this really strong feeling that Mike Oppenheim, Alana Oppenheim, Alice Oppenheim, Tyler Oppenheim, every person I've met and know is not that real. And it would be like in a play, having an actor ask another actor if they think they're an actor. Okay. And in dreams, they're also all, because you can dream of people. Yeah, see, I'm not sure who's dreaming. That's what I'm trying to say. And I know I'm not doing a good job answering this. And it's, again, because I have no confidence. When I dream, it's so much more real than this reality. And I can't get over that. And I don't understand how other people aren't compelled by that same feeling. They're so much more real. When I, I have this, like, reoccurring dream where I'm stuck on a flat board at the top of, like, um, this is a fake example, but, like, the CN Tower in Canada. Like, whatever the tallest tower in the world is. And I'm on it and no one's around. And there's no way to get down. And I'm just on it lying down. And I know if I move too much, I'm going to fall to my death. And I'm just paralyzed with fear and I have no idea what to do. That's like a very common dream I have. And it, it's so much more real than like reality sometimes or all the time. And when I'm there, it's like terrible. But luckily, because I can lucid dream, I more often than not towards the end of it, realize it's just a dream. And then I relax and then I switch to another dream or I wake up. Do you believe that eternal souls or spirits or people that are dead do you believe that you can interact with them wow that's so such a good question okay so this show talks about that a lot and it's made me change how i would explain it but it hasn't changed my answer my answer is yes um i think that uh the best evidence i have is a very good friend of mine from like i knew him since i was four he died about five years ago um, his name's Aaron Goldsmith, and I, I think about him so much more than I think about, like, grandparents I lost and, like, other people that were important to me. And I and I don't quite understand why, but I do know that as we got closer and closer towards his death, we talked so much about this. And he kept telling me, I don't believe I'll be able to do it, but if I can, I'll do it with you all the time. And I feel like he does it all the time. And one of the things he told me, and this is such a sweet, happy memory for me is he kept saying, you should date a Jewish girl. I'm Jewish. I like Jewish girls that I've dated, and I think you'd really gel with them. You know, this is after my divorce. And I had never dated a Jewish girl for, like, not anti-Semitic reasons. It's just complicated, but it's not important. I just never had. And so I told him, fine. 
if that's so important, after you die, like, send me a nice Jewish girl and I'll marry her. And then the the three women I dated after he died, they were all Jewish and you were the third and and you're the best. And I married you and I've never looked back. And I know that there's something weird about that. So, yeah, like, like he didn't, like, send you to me, but I think he helped us find each other maybe. And, and just to... Yeah. Yeah, to tuck one more, like, thing into that story, like, the story of you and I, like, not meeting is actually hilarious, and, like, we both lived in the Bay Area at the same time, even though you were moving there from, like, Michigan or Arizona, and I had moved there after a 10-year lapse, and it's just crazy, like, we totally could have and should have met, we're, like, about the same age, we have similar friends, blah, 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 so, yeah, so to answer your question, I do, I, I think somehow people who have died can still communicate and maybe it has to do with that Albert Einstein time thing. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned that you want to reach in this lifetime were patience and kindness and compassion, but you always talk about socialization and how all of our values are taught to us and socialization is, and it's not bad, but you don't love it. And you know, you participate in it, but don't you think that maybe the values that you want, they're either a product of socialization or Perhaps those are like our soul or spirit or God or something bigger, universal. I mean, I think to be a skeptic, you're absolutely right. Like I've been socialized to believe those are good values to attain. And also full circle, those are the precise values that make a society better. So I am a human living in a society and I was socialized and I'm currently socializing our daughter with you. And, you know, I'm constantly seeing socialization change like uh it's no longer okay to laugh at misogyny on television like um there's nothing wrong or right about that but that's just a social value that's changed if you look at the history of television that was like the majority of jokes from like the tonight show back in the 60s all the way to married with children in the 90s um you know uh minorities whatever that means are really getting positive attention and a lot of like power that they were previously denied and that's not just in america it's across the world those are social values like it or not they are like all of it's social um so i don't know if like there's these heavenly principles or if they're just things i've latched onto to make life hopefully better it's a really good question speaking about that i was like you know i feel like love might be the universal like maybe in every language and every culture regardless that's probably universal yeah you know it's funny um i read about this a lot it does seem like love is the only thing that doesn't have an opposite and i know people instantly say hate is the opposite of love it's really not um love isn't like a strong liking for something it's a compelling feeling and it's not about liking or disliking in my opinion do you agree with that i like that I don't know if I agree with it. I mean, you can say, like, I love Seinfeld. It's a great show. But, I mean, when you're really talking about what love is, like, when you're in love, you're not in hate, for example. Well, maybe you are. Mm. <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> yeah, maybe you are. I was just thinking the same thing. But I do. I, I think that the only variable that doesn't have a binary system is love, in my opinion. So I think you're on to something. You've said some things on this interview that were eye-opening for me. I, I didn't expect them. I thought that you consider you, that you had a soul and stuff like that. And you told me that you consider yourself spiritual, but not religious. What distinction are you making? Yeah, spirit has no rules. So like when I said I don't eat certain foods out of inclination, uh, if I said I'm a vegetarian, that would be like a religion. That would be like a rule system that I'm following here on Earth. Whereas if I'm a spiritual uh, person, 
I would just like go with my spiritual feelings. So religion at some point, all of the ones I've studied have a rule at some point, And that doesn't sound loving. And that doesn't sound intelligent the way I would imagine intelligent design and or a loving God who designed uh, this universe or who is designing as we go. So, um, like I said, there's not a single religion out there that doesn't like have a book or an oral rule system that people like listen to and must follow. Um, or if they don't, there's consequences. And I think that's, um, I think it's overall detrimental for enough types of personalities that we should probably stop giving priorities to religion but I would never tell people that you can't have one or you shouldn't have one. So like America was founded on this principle of like the freedom to worship and have any religion you want. But somehow 230 years later, uh, 250 years later, it seems like people now think that it's the opposite, that like you should have a religion and they should be the moral foundation of your behavior and that people without religion are loose cannons and they, and they, can't make intelligent good decisions or exercise self-control appropriately. That might be true for some people, but it certainly is not true for me. Yeah. yeah I know you've said you're Jewish. It's like Hitler asked, but <laughs> <laughs> can you make out a quote? I know you said you're Jewish. Like if Hitler asked, I love that. <laughs> but do you still consider it? Though? I mean, what amount of religion or if any, do you want to use to raise our daughter? Hey, audiences of Coffin Talk, you want to hear Alana Oppenheim get pissed at her husband? Just listen to this next answer. I would like to have zero religion taught to my children. I would love for them to never once ever be religious or get into the mindset of religion. All right. So no religious traditions. Okay. Well, that is, I summed up every, that's every question I had for you. So now I get to turn the mic over, let you have the floor. First of all, Alana, thank you. That was seriously awesome and that was fun. I really appreciate you. I love you. And I know that this was not Aww. easy for you at all, like in any way. Like I'm so awkward. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're great. And I wanted, I really want people who listen to like, get to know this awesome woman who, by the way, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but Alana's the producer of the show. She makes all of the art and like advertising that we do. She, um is on the phone with most of the guests ahead of time. And she always sends out post-production emails to all the guests. And I mean, she's incredible. And she, for a long time, edited every single episode. Um, like she'd listen to them and give me notes. And then I would do the actual physical editing. Now my brother, Sam, who's our booking manager and also has helped a lot does that. So, you know, it's a, it's a family operation. That's why my brother, Sam interviewed me for episode 50. And that's why you're doing episode a hundred. But um, I, I could not, possibly thank you alana and my brother sam at this juncture of the podcast um we're so much more successful than i thought we would be ever it, it blows my mind and i don't give a crap about that like i thought i would but what i do care about is i really get messages from people thanking me for like helping them and and it's 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 amazing the the feeling of helping people is such a good feeling. And when you accidentally stumble into it, like we did with this podcast, it's so rewarding. So I thought I would quit this podcast after a year. I really wanted to quit it after two years. Now that we're about to hit year three, F that I'm going, I love it. I'll, I'll do it as long as I can. Oh, I get too. I love hearing what people think happens and I've learned so many things. It's been a great ride. <laughs> That's awesome. So can I put you on the spot a little, little, little bit and ask you, what do you think happens when you die? I think that my soul go I don't, I don't think you review your life when you die i think as you're dying 
closer you get to it, you might have flashes, but I don't think you review the whole thing. And I think that um, you go, you linger around your body for a couple of days, watching everything take place. And then you leave your body completely and you go to this soul area, a collective soul area where other souls are there. And you can try again and go back into another life. And you pick certain things that'll happen in your life. Certain challenges you want to deal with, certain lessons. I think you you pick those themes kind of in advance and then pick a then go into a life where you deal with them. I, I love that answer. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And I think it's funny that uh we went and saw Collective Soul together and it was like kind of our joke song at our wedding. And you accidentally said the phrase collective soul. I've never even thought about that word before. What do you actually think the word collective soul means? I think it alludes to this either heaven or hell type idea, like where souls are all hanging out before they go in a physical human life. Well, I love it. I love it. And I love you, Alana Oppenheim, my wife. Thank you so much for interviewing me for episode 100. Thank you so much for being you. Thank you for our wonderful child and hopefully one more. And uh, last but not least, I want to thank our audience um, to all of you who check in sometimes, check in often. Um, or even are just checking in this one time. I truly love you and I appreciate you and I hope that these podcasts help you. Thanks for listening. And if I may be so bold, I would love to also say that it would really help our family if you would consider becoming a subscriber at likeyop.com, like that little ad you heard earlier said. And if you really want to help us, honestly, it would be awesome if you signed up for a premium subscription. We work a lot, we spend money on this show, and it would be cool to recuperate some of our expenses. However, as I say very often you don't have to do any of that just keep existing and try your best to be nice to other people i love you i hope you sort of or at least somewhat love us and uh, my name is mike oppenheim you have been listening to coffin talk and we will see you and you see that i do and i see that you see me and i see you hear this tune and i feel that you're near me and i sing you while the moon and then i see that you see me and i see you hear this tune and i feel that you're near me and i sing you are my moon you are the moon Thank mm-hmm. you.